From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's new 8th Congressional District spells opportunity for Latinos. We have been underrepresented in the past. The lines have divided us. That has been partially fixed. Our numbers are growing. We now can make a difference. It's worthwhile to register, and it's worthwhile to turn out and vote. It helps us to get a candidate in an office that knows the culture, has lived the culture, and understands the needs. Today, two activists who fought hard to make CD8 Colorado's most Latino district, where they go from here. Then, a picture of the candidates who want to represent the 8th in Congress. Later, reporter Shauna Lewis from our Pueblo Bureau on Russian ties to the steel mill in town. And sweaty soul music from Greeley. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There are opportunities galore in Colorado's new congressional district, the 8th. Democrats in Weld County, for instance, feel they have a fighting chance. Republicans also see the possibility of a pickup, a reflection of how CD8 was drawn to be competitive. Themes we continue to explore today how this new district elevates the voices of Latinos, who make up about 40% of its population. It's something Michael Cortez and Stacy Suniga fought hard for. Cortez is a board member and former executive director of CLARO, the Colorado Latino Leadership Advocacy and Research Organization. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here. Suniga is the president of the Latino Coalition of Weld County. And Stacy, welcome. Thank you. I'm very honored. We are familiarizing Coloradans with their newest congressional district. A little fun, first off, kind of like cloud gazing. When you look at the shape of this thing, what does it look like to you as it stretches from like Thornton up past Greeley? Any shapes emerge, Stacy? You know, and without the hill, I'm kind of seeing Italy. You know, <laughs> the, little, the boot shape. Okay. We're a little Italy now. <laughs> Michael, does it remind you of anything? Oh, it makes me think that if I-25 is a bow constrictor, it swallows something kind of lumpy. Oh my gosh. Your imaginations are fantastic. A colleague of ours saw a witch's nose. If you look to the right top of the district, do you see the witch's nose? Yeah, I yeah. do. That's <laughs> the profile. Yeah. All right. I know that you, Stacy, followed the redistricting process really closely. What was at stake for you? I really promoted for the fact that the 8th Congressional District would fall in my area in Weld County and the way it was drawn, you know, on up to exactly how it is. I think what was at stake for us is as far as Weld County, we were in CD4. And I think for years we felt just really ignored and suppressed in that congressional district. And, you know, there was just no competition, you know, for Latinos, it'd be like 70, 30 percent. 
So we really, as people uh, of color, wanted a district that gave us more of a competitive edge. Okay, so just a little context there. The district had long been, the previous district, fourth, had long been in Republican hands, save for about a two-year blip. Basically, the Republicans have ruled there since the 1970s. And so you wanted something that was more competitive. And then you you use those figures there, 30-70. Unpack that for me. Well, you know, I mean, if we're talking political, anything up here in Weld County is about 70% Republican and about 30% Democrat. So anybody running for those seats, um, you know, with that ratio, you need, the best you can hope for is 30%. We've had some do a little better, but that's a huge gap. You know, it's not a balanced area. And most definitely, you know, we needed some new life. We needed a refresh. We needed a, a restart. And so we hope that the congressional eighth would come to us so that that could happen. I think if we're talking political, Democrat is probably, in, you know, in the 40s and then the 50 difference is Republican. But we're happy with that because that makes it contestable. It makes it a competitive district. Well, in fact, the largest voting bloc is unaffiliated. But indeed, it is drawn as Colorado's in one of the country's most competitive districts. But am I hearing you? I mean, I understood your organization to be nonpartisan. Am I hearing you? advocate for Democrats? Or am I simply hearing you advocate for competition and someone who comes to the Latino community and says, we're listening? When I advocated in front of the commission, the congressional commission, um, I advocated for Latinos. And so uh, we definitely needed a more competitive district to even have Latinos run. When I say it's competitive, really my mind and my heart goes to bringing uh, some support to Latino candidates who want to run. You know, we've been, uh, even in my county of Weld, we we have one person of color on the commissioners, no people of color on the uh, city council, and no people of color on, on the school district board. In Greeley itself, we're, 40, we're about 40% Latino, and that's just, that depresses me that we don't have a person of color representing in, in some of our highest boards. Is that a function of Republican rule, though? Yes, very much so. Very much so. Of course, there are Latino Republicans, but just uh, help me understand that a little bit before we bring Michael into the conversation. There are Latino Republicans, but, you know, as Latinos here, I know I ran for city council when I ran, lots of money came against me, you know, and I didn't have that to compare. But still, in my last election, I lost by 15 votes. Uh, It's very intimidating for people of color to see what you have to go against. You put yourself out there and then all this money, you know, that perhaps Republicans have, you know, that dark money, which we know part of it was oil and gas and, you know, just makes it very difficult. So, if we had this the switch, you know, at least for the congressional district, we'd hope to inspire more Latinos, you know, because it's just been disenchantment. You know, we really need to get people who truly care about people of color, about Latinos, about low-income families, you know, all of that. We need some representation really in all of our boards, but this is a great start. Traditionally, Latinos are assumed to be mostly Democratic, but The Democratic Party does not invest heavily at all in trying to get voter registration drives targeting Latinos. They wait until the election is too close and then spend too little money trying to register people. They treat other Democrats 
much better. Uh, we are just not enough of a priority for either of our political parties. Michael, that's such a great point. Um, we have definitely experienced that up here in the northern part, you know, especially around Weld. So, Michael, Claro advocated for a majority Latino district. The end result was about 39 percent. What did you see as the benefit of a more concentrated district? And is there some disappointment then with the outcome? Well, clearly, uh, the benefit was one that's long overdue. The Latino population, and especially northern Weld County, has grown a great deal since the 2010 census. And we did not have fair representation of Latino interests in either the state legislature or Congress because our growing numbers were not reflected in our voting power. Being able to redraw the lines in a way that gave us better representation was what it was all about. The district where we have 39% is a terrific improvement. What was exciting about redistricting this time is the Constitution gave us new grounds for fair representation of Latinos. The Colorado voters amended the Constitution in 2018, not only to change the redistricting process, but also to change the criteria for drawing district lines in a way that gave better representation to communities of interest, including racial, ethnic, and language minorities. And Weld County was a really important part of that story. And when there's a strong candidate that can attract Latino voters and other Anglo or white voters who agree with them, we have a much better chance of uh, electing someone who represents our interests. But you would have wanted a higher concentration, no? In Colorado right now, that's about the best you're going to get. Let's talk about how this affects the issues uh, and what issues are elevated. So, listen, Latino folks are not a monolith by any means. But, Stacy, are there some common themes? Well, just representation of interest. It helps us to get a candidate in an office that knows the culture, has lived the culture, and understands the needs of a culture that is different. It, we're not a monolith, but Latinos may have different political affiliations, but we're not going to stray far from the cultural family thing that we share. When things are, are, are considered like housing and um, you know anything else that, that that's considered a family thing, it's more considered on the you know English style of of need, and uh, Latinos you know for the most part you know we've assimilated of course but you know we don't always have that same exact needs. Also you know as people we've we've felt uh, some of the discrimination and and the racism and that that impacts our lives and sometimes in, in the political arena. And so, you know, having those experiences and those things in common, I think is really important. And that's why, you know, redrawing these districts for people of interest is was really smart. When you say housing, are you talking about perhaps housing that is reflective of multi-generational families living under one roof? Or give me an example. Absolutely. You know, that happens. Also, you know, typically if Latinos, when you look at impoverished neighborhoods, mostly, you know, those neighborhoods are made up of people of color. 
And um, when we're talking about Weld County, you know, it's made up of Latinos. Well, if a, a community gets landlocked or, you know, they've got ideas for growth, usually in Weld County, it goes west. But recently, we've had some interest in going east. And, you know, there's been some concern about that, you know, bringing in some maybe expensive housing. We worry about gentrification and pushing those people out. And we know that happens. You know, it's happened in Denver. It's happened in Boulder. It's happened in Fort Collins. And so when city planners or whoever, you know, uh, developers are coming forward and they have these great ideas with these great amenities, for them, it looks like a good deal. But if they're not looking far enough down the line, it could turn into a really bad deal for the people that live in there. And, you know, having a house is generational wealth for a lot of Latinos. That's what they can pass on. And when you're outpriced and pushed out, uh, that doesn't happen. Ryan, your comment that Latinos are not a monolith is really important. We are diverse. We're not all in one party. We are not all in one part of the state. Uh, we have different issues in different parts of the state. It might be gentrification in urban areas. It might be water rights in Southern Colorado, but there are some issues that really bring us together. Equal educational opportunity, uh, a chance to for our children to have more success in the labor market than our parents have. That will bring Latinos together. And it's those issues that bring Latinos together that we're really trying to give voice to by increasing Latinos' influence in elections. The, the way the district lines are drawn is just really important to us. Do the district lines divide our communities or do they allow us to coalesce around an issue and have our representatives pay attention to us? And then, Stacey, I, I'm so sad to hear about the racism that you face in Weld County and that you've witnessed. Uh, did you want to say a few more words about that? If I might give a, a quick, really quick history. My grandparents came up from New Mexico up here to work in the fields. At that time, when they came up to the Greeley area, they could not live inside the city boundaries of Greeley. So they moved outside and created their own community called the Spanish Colony, it's become known as. As a result of that, there was a lot of racism in the city. Um, you know, the local pool at that time had signs up. It was only one, one swimming pool in Greeley, but it had signs up around the fence that said, uh, no dogs and no Mexicans. And so they couldn't swim even uh, in the municipal pool. So my uncles would go, they were, you know, young boys uh, that would go to the sand pits and swim there when they, on a hot day. And one day we lost uh, one of my uncles and, and a cousin who, uh, who my uncle was drowning and my cousin, his cousin uh, jumped in to try to save him. Both boys were lost. Hmm. And so I think after that, you know, there were some community members that really challenged these rules in the city and you know, went to the city council and some things were changed. But, you know, I mean, you come into the city with, with a mindset that, you know, Mexicans aren't allowed, you know, it was really hard. You know, they tried to go to a, a local Catholic church for services and they'd have to stand outside or stand along the walls or, or force them to the basement because they could not take up a space in the pews. So, you know, it's been like racism is, it's a long haul to tear down that wall Michael, Claudio's efforts in redistricting actually began in 2020 during the census. 
you know, but it's come to light recently that the 2020 census likely significantly undercounted the Latino population. This is by the Bureau's own admission, by the way. Blacks and Native Americans were also undercounted. How, if at all, did that affect the shape of CDAs? Oh, it certainly did. It affected every congressional district. Undercounting was severe. You remember that we had a pandemic and we had a presidential administration at that time that was actively discouraging Latino response to the census. And it worked. The census keeps really good data on undercounts and has for the past few censuses. And we were very much aware that some census tracts that had lower income rates and higher numbers of Latinos were undercounted more. Hmm. And as you say, the Census Bureau acknowledged that. Uh, We tried to improve our turnout rate, but we didn't have the statewide resources to be able to do that as much as we hoped. And so Latinos are literally underrepresented in the census and consequently are underrepresented among elected officials and in legislatures. Chris, census data determine all sorts of things, including federal spending. Uh, So it's well beyond even redistricting, which is critical. Interesting to note that while this district has the greatest percentage of Latinos in Colorado uh, among the congressional districts here, it also has the fewest registered voters. Do you think there's a connection there at all, Stacey? And is that a concern? Just turnout, participation? Well, I think in our area, turnout is always a concern. And again, I just think it's the repression and the really a general feeling of, you know, why do it if um, they see the candidates and they feel like there's going to be no representation when they're hearing those messages that's coming from those candidates. And so, yes, you know, we're hoping that this new district, you know, it's definitely different than what we had. Of course, you know, we would have liked more, but I'll mimic Michael there and say, you know, we're, we're happy it is what it is. Uh, for right now. And, you know, we hope that that'll spark some inspiration people to say, hey, you know, this isn't the situation that it was, you know, I want to register to vote. And we're absolutely going to put concerted effort into getting people to register to vote and increase those numbers. So yes, there's work to do. But at least I think there's some hope behind it that help us accomplish that goal. And, And so imagine you're coming to my door and try to convince me to vote, or to register even, what would that message sound like in the new 8th Congressional District? Well, I would say, um, if I came to your door, and I'd say, you know, we have a new Congressional District, it's competitive, we've got uh, some great Latinos running for seats to represent this district, and uh, we need your help, we need your participation, we need you to get involved. That would be my messaging. I don't know, Michael, what, what would you say? I, I agree completely. I would point to the history that we have been underrepresented in the past, that the lines have divided us. That has been partially fixed. Our numbers are growing. We now can make a difference. It's worthwhile to register, and it's worthwhile to turn out to vote, unlike during the last election. This is an opportunity to fix the things that we all care about. So yeah, I'd, uh, I agree completely with you, Stacy. 
Michael, Stacy, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. This thanks for having us. Michael Cortez of Claro, the Colorado Latino Leadership Advocacy and Research Organization, and Stacy Suniga, president of the Latino Coalition of Weld County. So right now in CD8, there are a slew of candidates from both parties running for the U.S. House. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is following the race, which is ever-changing at this point. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. So as we've reported, this new congressional district really is considered the state's most competitive, frankly, one of the most competitive in the country. Uh, Didn't state law actually require that it not skew one way or the other? Yes, making districts competitive was one of the requirements of the state's independent redistricting commission, although it was not the top factor they had to consider. It had to be weighed against other criteria, like keeping the district compact and keeping communities of interest together. But yes, this 8th congressional district is the most competitive seat in Colorado based on previous election results. Democrats would have a very slight competitive edge, but it's around 1%, so negligible. Mm. And it might be even less so this year, since polls indicate this could be a very strong election year for Republicans compared to the previous election cycles the commission considered. I asked this question of uh, some partisans on Friday. Uh, I'll ask it of you, Benta. How much national attention do you think CD8 will attract or maybe is already getting? Does that translate uh, perhaps to national money being spent here? Yes, absolutely. Well, Republicans are hoping to flip control of the U.S. House from blue to red. So this will be a key race that will get a lot of national attention because it is incredibly competitive. It's worth noting that it's a bit of a rare thing for a state to create such a competitive district in redistricting because most in most states, politicians draw political lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not interested in gambling with new districts. They want to preserve their own power. Also, both parties in Colorado are looking at this seat in the long term because this seat right now doesn't have an incumbent. Whoever does win will have that advantage in two years. Running for re-election as an incumbent, uh, it's more difficult to oust someone who's already in office. So I'm hearing you say that there are a lot of reasons for the national parties to invest in this district in these races. Um, so I, a win this year simply makes life easier for whatever party wins in the future. Yeah, that's right. And all of the other congressional boundaries in Colorado give current members a strong chance of holding on to their seats. There's one exception. That's the 7th District, oh. which includes Lakewood. That's open because Democrat Ed Perlmutter isn't seeking re-election. We have talked about the prominence of Latinos in this district so far in the show. Right now, all of the Democrats in the race are Latinos. The Republicans don't have any. Is that right? How do you think that might shape the election? What's the picture here? Colorado doesn't have a Latino member of Congress currently. Um, This new district has a Latino population of nearly 40 percent. So I think this will be something those candidates bring up. And in fact, they already are. Uh, One of the first things you see on Democratic candidate State Representative Yadira Caraveo's website is the fact that her parents came to Colorado from a small town in Mexico. She says looking for a better life. And Yadira says she hopes to be the state's first Latina in Congress. Uh, Her Democratic opponent, Chaz Tedesco, describes his biography that he was adopted from foster care into a multicultural household, that that household embraced Hispanic, indigenous and German-American traditions. Run down some of the other candidates in this race. 
Yes. Well, um, Caraveo and Tedesco on the Democratic side are, are the most competitive candidates in that field. A third candidate, a political newcomer, um, suspended his campaign last month and he endorsed Caraveo. There's a fourth candidate who filed to run as a Democrat, but he was arrested on an outstanding warrant earlier this year, and that was connected to charges of identity theft and fraud. So yes, he has filed paperwork to run. I think it's hard to imagine him making the ballot. And as for the Republicans running in CDA to this point? Yes, that feels a little bit larger. Um, There's a number of names that are likely to be pretty familiar to people in that district. State Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer, she was a longtime Weld County commissioner before she joined the state house. Then there's a former state lawmaker, Lori Sane. She served in the House for many years. She is now a Weld County commissioner. Oh, so two women who might appeal especially to voters on the northern end of the district. Yes, and then there's another experienced candidate from the southern portion, Thornton Mayor Jan Coleman. She also works in the oil and gas industry, which has a large presence in the district. Indeed. Um, There were two political newcomers in the Republican race. One did not make the ballot. The other, Tyler Alcorn, he's a former Green Beret. He now runs a job placement company for veterans. Quite a wide field for voters to choose from there. Uh, But again, CD8 has the fewest registered voters of any Colorado congressional district. So how important will the effort be to get people to register? Both political parties will be trying to energize their base. In a lot of ways, the midterm election is seen as a referendum of the sitting president, Joe Biden. Democrats are in power in Colorado and in Washington, D.C. So they are the party that will have to defend the direction the country is headed at this moment in time. As I mentioned, we're seeing in polls across the country, Republicans are more energized. So I think voter turnout will be key for Democrats and for those unaffiliated voters. And turnout, of course, depends on registration. CD8 also has a large block of unaffiliated voters, like much of the state, How might that impact the strategy of Democrats and Republicans? Yes, in this district, unaffiliated voters make up the largest percentage of the electorate. That means I think you'll see both parties try to appeal to voters who are either more centrist or, for whatever reason, do not want to align with a major party. Mm. Candidates will need to have a lot of support from these voters to win. I think we'll see a focus on the economy, jobs, inflation, public safety, how Democrats handled COVID, energy and environment. Thank you so much, Bento. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Public Affairs reporter Bento Berkland helping us get our head around Colorado's new 8th Congressional District. You can listen to last week's CD8 road trip with stops in Thornton and Greeley in our podcast. And Colorado Matters continues shortly as we explore Russian ties to a Pueblo steel mill. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Douglas County is the second fastest growing county in Colorado. Its primary water source is underground and drying up. Now the county wants to buy and pump in water from San Luis Valley farmers and ranchers, a region with its own share of water woes. Obviously everybody needs drinking water to live, but we all have water tied to our livelihoods. Read more of the story at CPR.org. You know that giant steel mill you see from I-25 in Pueblo? It's part of Evraz PLC, an international company with connections to Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, who was sanctioned after Russia invaded Ukraine in February. 
Since then, Evraz PLC's stock value plummeted, and the company's shares were suspended from trading on London's FTSE. Evraz is a big enough player that it's causing a little bit of uncertainty across the entire steel industry. Economist Tatiana Bailey there from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. So far, though, it's business as usual at the Pueblo Mill, according to Shauna Lewis of KRCC. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Ryan. Remind us of who Roman Abramovich is. So he's a Russian billionaire who's gotten a lot of publicity lately, uh, especially because of his ownership of Britain's Chelsea soccer team, along with one of those big super yachts worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he has a couple of homes in Snowmass. But there's also a lot of discussion about his connections to Russian President Vladimir Putin. And what's really relevant to this conversation is that he owns about a 29% stake of Pueblo steel mill parent company, Evraz PLC. Which has not always owned the mill. No. Evraz acquired the Pueblo mill in 2007 as part of a larger deal. And Evraz also has scrap metal recycling facilities in Colorado Springs and Denver. Oh. Last month, both the European Union and the United Kingdom sanctioned Abramovich. How does that affect the Pueblo mill? So Evraz North America, which is headquartered in Chicago, is what manages the Pueblo mill. And they issued a statement um, last month saying that while Evraz North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of the international parent company, hang in there with me, it operates independently here in the U.S., And that apparently includes getting raw materials and corporate financing, all their operations and stuff like that is all North America. Hmm. So they point out that they hire local workers and that they're really ingrained in the local community. And so far, everybody I've spoken to here in Pueblo has said that work's continuing as usual at the Pueblo mill. But something else to keep in mind is that the U.S. is considering sanctioning Abramovich, too. Along with the UK and the EU, what does Evraz make in Pueblo? The steel mill in Pueblo got its start back in the late 1800s, making rail to build the tracks for the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. And railroad tracks are still one of its primary products. Hmm. You know, it's been a significant part of Pueblo's history and economy ever since then. They also make pipe that's used in the oil and gas industry here, as well as steel rod, rebar, and wire. And there's a new rail mill currently under construction here. Everything at that steel mill is huge, and this project fits right in. The main building for the what they call the new long rail mill will cover 15 acres, and it'll make rails that are about a, the length of a football field in size. It's expected to recycle more than a billion pounds of scrap steel each year into rail that's used for replacing and rebuilding train tracks around the country. And interestingly, it's almost entirely powered by this really, really humongous solar array that was just finished recently. They expect the construction to be done later this year. That is an enormous project. Did Pueblo have to do anything to get Everest to build that new mill facility there? Yes. Uh, A couple of years ago, Everest accepted an incentive package that included $15 million along with some other benefits. And that money comes from the city of Pueblo's half-cent sales tax that's dedicated for economic development. And in exchange, the company agreed to build the mill and to maintain about 1,000 full-time jobs in the city. Um, PEDCO is the local economic development organization that helped make that happen. Mm -hmm. 
And it's President Jeff Shaw says he has no concerns about Everest holding up its end of the bargain. And to his knowledge, all the construction's going on the way it was planned. But the natural question here is what happens to Everest's money? I mean, do any profits generated in Pueblo end up going to Abramovich? Well, you know, I asked an Everest spokesman that question, and he said, profits generated by Everest North America are reinvested back into our North American people and operations. And he pointed to their $700 million investment in the new long rail mill project that we just talked about. I also asked him what would happen if the United States decides to sanction Abramovich. And he said, they can't comment on hypotheticals and they don't know how government policy will impact them. He also said that they hope that any U.S. sanctions placed on shareholders will take into account that Everest North America is legally incorporated here and it supports jobs, customers, and communities here in North America. That statement seems to dance around the fundamental question just a bit. Uh, Are you seeing that these global forces are really going to affect the Pueblo mill, Shauna? Well, so far it doesn't look that way. UCCS economist Tatiana Bailey says, while no one can predict how long the crisis will last, the turmoil might affect the company's ability to do business. But she also told me that there's already been so much upheaval in the steel industry supply chains due to the pandemic that there's likely a market for the Pueblo Mills products. And that if the Pueblo Mill can keep producing steel products, the Abramovich situation probably won't affect their customers' buying decisions. Thanks so much for this. You're welcome. From KRCC, my colleague Shauna Lewis. State lawmakers have $16 billion worth of decisions to make. That's the chunk of the budget that they have discretion over. Colorado has more money to work with this year, thanks to an economy that's still relatively strong, plus an influx of COVID relief money. Andrew Kenny talked through legislators' priorities with our colleague Nathan Heffel. Give us a quick refresher. How does Colorado's budget process work? Well, it happens once a year, and it's actually pretty much the only thing that state lawmakers are constitutionally required to do every year. They have to pass a balanced budget, can't spend more than they have. And that money goes pretty much everywhere across the state, everything from K-12 schools to higher education to health care and even running prisons. This year is unique because they've got about $4 billion in one-time COVID relief from the federal government. On top of general tax revenues, because the economy is so strong, those are booming. You know, higher retail sales, higher property taxes, higher sales taxes all coming in, giving them uh, quite a lot to spend, relatively. And how else is the pandemic affecting these negotiations at the state capitol? Well, you know, lawmakers in one way are splitting up all that money, deciding how to spend it. But they're also keeping their eyes on the economic fallout from the pandemic and recovering from some of the damage that was done. And one of the biggest single items they're talking about is spending $600 million to help dig out the state's unemployment program from all the massive payments that it had to make during the worst of the pandemic. So why is this infusion of money necessary? If you remember, in the height of the pandemic, there was just massive unemployment. That means they were paying out tons of benefits. They spent down that unemployment insurance trust fund that is the source of those benefits. And then you have to repay that. They basically went into debt to the federal government, you know, in so many words. And now they have to pay that back. Normally, that would be done by putting higher costs on businesses and their workers to an extent. 
Instead, the state's talking about taking a big chunk of that and paying it out itself to save some of that money to, to businesses. Then, you know, there's also another area where some of the last of the federal pandemic support programs that were helping people through this period are starting to end, and that has a financial impact. So what kind of costs might Colorado be facing when that happens? The biggest thing that I'm looking at right now is that Medicaid eligibility, you know, that's the federal health insurance program, essentially. The eligibility for that changed and it helped hundreds of thousands of people get on or stay on that program. But those changes are set to expire. And that means that uh, by one estimate, we could go from 1.6 million people enrolled in part of that Medicaid program in Colorado down to 1.4 million. So that's like 200,000 people that then have to figure out a different healthcare arrangement. So beyond COVID, are there other priorities that are being outlined here? Uh, In the budget, one of the other big items is trying to figure out how to respond to worsening air pollution. Uh, The federal government has placed a lot of the state basically on notice that our air quality levels going down and down. So this proposed state budget includes about $43 million for what it's calling air quality transformation. And that would go towards stuff like tracking and regulating emissions from like oil and gas facilities or paying to help replace gas lawn equipment with electric lawn equipment and hiring new employees. But the thing about that is, you know, that's going to be an ongoing expense for us. But a lot of that would be only funded by what's called one-time federal funding that we only have that one time. So when that goes away, how is this going to be paid for? That's something for the future legislatures to to figure out basically right Just now. Just kicking it down the road. <laughs> you know, a little bit. Um, they would say they're, they're spending what they've got because it's the best way to do it right now. But it does bring up a criticism that I heard from Republican Senator Bob Gardner, who warned that basically this proposed budget doesn't do enough to prepare for an economic downturn, that it's relying too much on this federal money. You have to believe there's a cliff out there that Suddenly, everybody's going to go over. Others may say there's not, but I've been here through two downturns already. I heard from another Republican lawmaker, House Minority Leader Hugh McKean, that instead of being laser-focused on saving Coloradans' money, this budget proposal, he said, is like a laser light show. Lasers everywhere. Too many priorities. (laughs) Well, Well, I know that one big priority the governor and many lawmakers have highlighted this year relates to public safety. How is that being incorporated into the proposed budget? It makes a couple appearances. Um, This year starts a pretty substantial ramp up of the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the CBI. They'll see their workforce expanded by about 100 folks. That's about a third. Uh, Millions more for security at the Capitol here in Denver. Democrats are talking also about $100 million of basically public safety legislation, grants for police and cities and more. Um, And then you'll also still see some criminal justice reforms taking place. There's an item in here that's $17 million that would basically pay the daily fees that folks are paying in order to stay in halfway houses. So uh, instead of having to take on that $17 a day fee themselves, the state will step in with $17 million to pay everybody's fees. Huh. Is there any other area where you're seeing an unusual increase in spending? Yeah, this is going to be a pretty big year for K-12 and higher education. One of the biggest things is that the state's going to try to increase its contribution to local schools funding by almost $200 million, take a big bite out of what they call the uh, the BS factor, which is the amount by which the state is falling short of its legal obligations. That's budget stabilization, <laughs> if you're wondering, not the other one. Ah, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and originally they actually thought that with 
all this new money coming in that they could totally close that gap and, and fulfill their obligations, but inflation's getting in the way. So they're going to get rid of about almost half of it. Um, higher eds also do for a pretty big boost, and that should keep tuition from rising more than about 2% at most institutions. Now, I know you've had your eyes all over this budget. Yes. So before I let you go, is there anything else that strikes you or gives you pause about the budget this year? We talked a little bit about inflation, and that is showing up. It's, it's eating into their, their very rosy earlier expectations about what they could do. And it shows up in the weirdest places. Like, for example, the state is preparing to spend, it looks like, $5 million more on printing and document services. And a lot of that's because of increasing costs, because of inflation. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny speaking with Nathan Heffel about takeaways from the proposed state budget, which passed the House this past Thursday. It now moves on to the Senate. Still to come, the teachers are not all right. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When he first visited Colorado, Skylar Colfax was stepbrother to a Denverite and near the front of the line of succession to be U.S. president. In 1865, the Indiana congressman was Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and a good person to get friendly with, as he held the federal purse strings. So renaming 15th Avenue Colfax Avenue in his honor was likely for some kind of favor, though today no one seems to know just what that might have been. Schuyler Colfax rose one step higher on the national stage, vice president to Ulysses S. Grant for a term, and then a corruption scandal took him out of the light. But Colfax Avenue goes on, the longest commercial street in America. Its street signs stretch across the whole metro area and onto the plains from Golden to Strasburg, all stamped with the name of a man from Indiana who might have been president. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. After two years of pandemic schooling, Not only are the kids not all right, but two new surveys of Denver teachers show the teachers aren't all right either. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has that story and some potential solutions. What is the probability of not rolling a six? Not rolling a six. Patrick Jiner moves from student to student in his seventh grade math class at Lake Middle School. He's always on his feet. Focus jazz plays lightly in the background. And make sure we put it in correctly. It's asking for fraction form or whole number. Okay, make sure you put there it There are still lots of assignments to grade and lessons to plan. So before our interview, I asked if he wanted to get a drink of water. Oh, no, I'm fine. Okay. This is teacher life. We don't, we don't go to the bathroom. We don't get drinks. <laughs> we eat and run. Like, it's just how we roll. It's also a reflection of the sheer volume of things teachers have on their plates. Half of DPS staff surveyed by the district felt their workload was sustainable. Every teacher leaves the school with homework to take home, work that they did not have enough time to complete inside of their workday. And it does affect your next day job if that work isn't done. Two surveys were done. In the district survey, only a third of staff responded. Usually, two-thirds do. It asks staff how engaged they are, meaning if they enjoy their work, feel it has a positive impact, and feel valued. During the height of the pandemic, engagement was around 75 percent. This spring, it had dropped to 57 percent. Teachers were at 51 percent. We struck a nerve. You know, I'm just watching the spreadsheet, and it's just response, 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 response. Karen Mortimer chairs the accountability committee that advises the district. It also conducted a survey. Denver teachers reported burnout, distress, and educators on the verge of quitting. They say they don't have the time or support to do their jobs, that is, 
teach children? I think they're drowning in a sea of acronyms. My READ Act, my SLOs, they'll constantly talk about if I have to fill out one more spreadsheet, I'm just not going to be able to, to make it to the next day. Time spent filling out accountability requirements eats into lesson planning and relationship building with kids. The number one thing teachers surveyed want is flexibility and autonomy. Some say scripted curricula cut into their ability to engage students. Preschool teacher Amy DeFusco moved to a school this year that has a more flexible curriculum. But even so... I have to take pictures of each student to document, and I have over 20 objectives, and I have 27 students right now. So I have to have at least three pictures for every objective for every student. Every year, teachers make similar complaints about the bureaucratic requirements, but nothing changes. Things just keep getting put onto our plate, but nothing ever seems to get taken off of our plate. The district's Anthony Smith says DPS is committed to trying to lessen the load. What I don't want to do is over-respond to the event, and then the next survey we see is teachers don't feel like they're getting the feedback they need to get better. By the event, he means the pandemic. Smith said he received more than 3,000 written suggestions on what teachers need. And it goes for more planning time. Some teachers have said, I just need not to have to sub anymore. I need mental health supports. I need behavior supports. I need curriculum supports. And we're taking that, and then we're going back and saying, how do we make this doable? He says he's heard many teachers trying to tease out whether kids' lack of practice at being at school, that's led to worse behavior problems, and teachers' lack of practice at handling behavior issues is partly what's made the year so hard. Mortimer says schools feel pressure now to decrease suspension rates. Many, many in our survey spoke about how they feel like they don't have the tools at their disposal, the avenues for, I guess, student behavior management or discipline that they might have had in the past. Everybody should be on their ISL if you need help. Don't be afraid to ask. Huge class sizes also take a toll on teachers, and that's on the state and Colorado voters who've turned down statewide ballot measures for more funding. The state spends $3,000 less per student than the national average. Again, teacher Patrick Jiner. If I had all my students today, right, I would have almost 30 kids in the classroom. Some teachers have more than that, 35, 36 students in a class. That becomes overwhelming. Jiner is collaborating with district leaders and board members to bring teacher suggestions into DPS's new strategic plan. In the meantime, Amy DeFusco sees teachers new and old looking to get out for herself. I don't see myself going anywhere anytime soon, but I'd like to make it better while I'm here. I'm Jenny Brandine, CPR News. Throughout today's show, you have heard music from this band. The Burroughs are largely based in Greeley, where eight of the nine members live, including Brianna Harris. I am the saxophonist and also manager for the Burroughs. Oh, that's funky. The band started in 2013 when singer Johnny Burroughs linked up with a horn section from the University of Northern Colorado. It was supposed to be a one-off gig, but the chemistry was just too good. We play what we like to call sweaty soul music. <laughs> so it's high energy, funk and soul. Uh, it's a large band with nine people in it. We have a really dynamic lead singer and then a four-piece horn section rhythm section, a lot of backing vocals, super fun, danceable, high energy music. 
Brianna Harris says people are often surprised to learn the boroughs are from Greeley, but she's quick to point out the area's vibrant and supportive arts scene, due in large part to the music program at UNC. I think what is a little unusual about our band is that we have stayed based in Greeley after graduating and have kind of put down roots in this community. Uh, it's a good size. Um, to be honest, it also has like more affordable housing than a lot of other places on the Front Range, and several of us have actually bought houses here, bought our first houses and, you know, live within like a mile or two of each other. And I'm not sure we'd be able to do that in Denver. And as a musician, you know, you're in the car all the time anyways, driving to some gig. So <laughs> it, we really love the, the size and feel of the community. And it's been a really supportive launch pad for us. Brianna Harris manages and plays saxophone for the Burroughs of Greeley. She told me 2022 is shaping up to be a busy year for the band. They headed into the studio over the weekend, and they're hitting the road. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. It's